Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. How often do you experience brain fog, where you struggle to concentrate or you have a hard time remembering things? Brain fog can be a symptom of systemic inflammation in the body. Most people have suffered from it for so long, they forget what normal brain function even feels like. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people who have an injury or illness that holds them back from enjoying the outdoors. And today's goal is to help you figure out the root causes to your brain issues, specifically how the function of the gut can influence the function of your brain. We have Dr. Robert Silverman joining us today, who is well-known in the functional medicine space. So we go pretty deep into testing, symptoms, and the connection between the gut lining and the blood-brain barrier. So let's get started with the interview. Dr. Robert Silverman is a chiropractic doctor, clinical nutritionist, national and international speaker, author of bestseller Inside Out Health, 2015 Sports Chiropractor of the Year, a seasoned health and wellness expert on both the speaking circuits and within mainstream media, and he spoke at Talks at Google and maintains a busy private practice in White Plains, New York. Thank you for coming on to the show, Dr. Rob. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here, Dr. Brian. I can't wait to share some insights and get a little give and take with you. Yeah, and I would love to dive into your background because there's a lot that you d have done. You've done a lot with media. You've done a ton of different webinars and videos and all that type of stuff. So I would love to just dive into your background as a chiropractor and what got you so interested in looking at the whole body other than just spinal movement or movement in general. Yeah, you know, um, it's a great question because we, you know, we were talking before we went on and we were talking about how important movement is and how important proper movement is. And I, I know if we just talked about that, um, pe people would be imbued with enthusiasm to be more conscious of it. So the reason I got into movement was um, uh, I have what they call congenital torticollis. I know you know what that is. That's a lateral flexion movement of my neck. It was at birth. So I've always had this uh, asymmetry. Uh, so my movement has always been a problem. So people always say, well, we need to get good posture. And I can never have perfect posture because the shortening of my SCM and my neck, but I can have strong posture. I may not have perfect movement, but I can have good movement. So one, we want to move well, and two, we want to move well for the individual. So that congenital issue has led me into a space of being a chiropractor. And because I think chiropractors and physical therapies are movement experts, and they all are pointed at fixing and combining different pathways of the body from the inside out. And at what point did you start realizing that everything is connected and that you should be looking a lot deeper than just the movement aspect? Um, you know, it's a great point. And let's, re let's reiterate exactly what you said. The body's all interconnected. And the body's interconnected through systems. So when we talk movement, movement is a composite of multiple systems. So. I always would, you know, initially uh, our medical model in America is, is, it has some faults and some of the faults are that it's a sy symptom based where you and I are looking at systems when you can look at different mechanisms that analyze systems and the combination of systems, you're ultimately able to get to what we call root cause resolution. Movement is a great view of externally how the body works, but truly what's possibly affecting 
inside the body. Remember, posture. Posture is a shadow of movement. I like that. And today we're going to be diving into the gut and the brain axis and how those are connected through the rest of the entire system. So can you talk about how important is the gut to our overall health? Well, gut, 80% of your immune cells are in your gut. It's where your macro and micronutrients are absorbed, which means your foods and your vitamins and minerals. So for me, I always ask my patients, what have you done for your guts lately? Do you have the guts to be healthy? We all know that if we cut our skin, we put a Band-Aid to protect it. We know if we really rip our skin open or somebody cuts us, we use stitches. When we do things that damage our gut lining, how come we don't have Band-Aids? How come we don't stitch it up? Because we take it for granted because we can't see it. So the gut, again, is 80% of our immune cells. But what's most interesting about the gut and where the field is going is the communication of the gut to your brain. Your gut and your brain are actually what we call bidirectional goes up from your gut to your brain and it comes down from your brain to your gut. So whatever you do to your gut, you do to your brain. Whatever you do to your brain, you do to your gut. Uh, so for me, gut health is at a premium and everybody should consider taking some form of symptomology test or test to see if your gut is in pristine condition. And what would be some indicators that someone's gut might not be in pristine condition? Great question. So I would ask my patients, do you get gas and bloating after you eat? And they'll say, yes. Well, gas and bloating after you eat, we're not supposed to have. We take that for granted. If we have gas and bloating, it implies that we have a digestion problem. It also implies that our gut may not be in that pristine condition because the gut has no pain fibers in it, the intestines. So the only way it can tell you through symptomology that your GI tract is damaged is through gas and bloating. And the next question I always ask my patients, do you get brain fog about 45 minutes after you eat? And if they say yes, brain fog is a sign that the gut is communicating to the brain and the neurological impulses to your brain are slowed from damage to your gut. You should be, we, I just ate before I came on and you, you saw, I just came on and I, I feel full of enthusiasm and full of energy. A lot of people would start to lag about 15 to 30 minutes after they eat. You, you just put fuel in your tank. The fuel shouldn't slow you. Your fuel should, if you will, fuel you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, kind of like similar to a Thanksgiving dinner when everyone just loads up on all these different types of foods and then they just go and sit on the couch and watch, watch football the rest of the night. Part of that's because of the types of foods that they're eating and it's just having impact on the system. Is that correct? Absolutely. Great analogy. Um, we, all, we all love our Thanksgiving. And yes, football is the thing that most people watch. And when you look at Thanksgiving, although we can make it a healthy meal, most people eat a lot of carbohydrates. So carbohydrates, I call them the culprits of health. So you want to limit your carbohydrates. Just remember, there's always essential fats. There, so fats are good. And not trans fats. There's essential proteins because of amino acids, but there's no essential carbohydrates. So we have to be careful in the type of carbohydrates, these processed foods and sugars. To get back, to segue back to Thanksgiving, what do most people eat? Apple pie, stuffing, lots of potatoes and the like. So they're eating a lot of calories and a lot of carbohydrate calories, therefore unsettling their gut, you know, sugar and ultimately getting that lethargy that we just talked about, or if you will, brain fog. So a lot of people think that it's a tryptophan from the turkey that causes that 
at Hippin Energy, but um, is it actually the tryptophan or are you getting enough tryptophan from the turkey that would actually make any type of impact like that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great comment about the tryptophan, and I know you posed it as a question, but it's really not the tryptophan. It's really the carbohydrates. So when you think about it, probably in the standard uh, Thanksgiving meal, and, and let's let's talk about that. That was a great example. I would have never thought to use that. You know, turkey would be the best thing. So come come to Rob's house, where my wife is a fabulous cook, and there's no question that my wife could be Bobby Flay. But with that being said, you have your meats, you have your white meats and your dark meats. So you have turkey that's really healthy. You can make a non-carbohydrate based stuffing, maybe like a cauliflower rice type of stuffing. And clearly if you're gonna use apple pie, there's specific, you know, you wanna take the gluten and the added sugar out of the apple pie. So people go, oh, it's a health pie, it must not taste good. It tastes good, believe me when I tell you. So when you take those little subtleties out and limit your portion size, you don't have to gouge, you should feel great. You should be able to enjoy a football game. As a matter of fact, most people I see that eat healthy don't watch the football. They go outside in the backyard and play the football game. I like it. I like it. So now going back to the intestinal intestinal permeability that you were talking about, uh, can you talk about how the gut lining is supposed to uh, react within the body? And then what different things cause uh, the... Uh, gut lining to start to expand and allow molecules to go through it. Yeah, the break. So we'll, we'll call it, our, just so you know, our gut lining is semi, what we call semi-permeable. So the gut lining refers to the large and the small intestine. Now the small intestine has really been improperly named. The small intestine is actually 90 to 95% of the length of our intestinal tract. What it's supposed to occur in our small intestine is it's supposed to be able to absorb digested food, water and nutrients and digest it and pull it from our gut into our bloodstream so we get water nutrients and energy unfortunately when it becomes too permeable or the term we like to use is leaky so now we have leaky gut some specific things pass through the lining that shouldn't like a large undigested food particle some bacteria viruses yeast those things pass, and when they pass and go into our bloodstream, they stimulate our immune system to attack it, and that starts the cascade of inflammation. Our large intestine, which is quite small, is supposed to kill bacteria. Any problems in the large intestine are usually like ulcerative colitis, IBD, IBS, celiac. And so uh, when food is passing through the gut lining and into the system, what happens with the immune system when that happens? Well, interesting when the, you, you know you asked about the immune system getting turned on. So our immune system in our body is interesting in that it has two switches. Switch number one says on. Switch number two says off. Off is it won't turn on if it thinks that what just passed the gut is self, meaning it's supposed to be there and it's seen it before, like a collagen, like a digested food particle. But when something passes the gut that the immune system detects and says shouldn't be there, like certain bacteria, the immune system gets turned on, it attacks it, it sends what we call B and T cells, not trying to get too technical. And when it attacks it, it causes a allergic or a localized systemic inflammatory reaction. If it continues, it then flows through your bloodstream and you get systemic inflammation. 
And then the highest level, the 35,000 of you, kind of like what I'm looking at at the mountain. You know, you should definitely show everybody that picture of that mountain before there, especially for like me, a guy afraid of heights. That mountainous view is when it attacks, your immune system attacks it's this antigen. It then goes on and possibly starts attacking joints. And we call that autoimmunity. So a lot of people are talking about food sensitivities and they're getting these uh, IgG tests done that show all yeah. these uh, different indications of foods that they might have issues with. When someone has uh, a gut lining issues and all these different foods are showing up on a test, is that a pretty good indicator that there's an issue with the gut lining or what would be the best way to um, test for that? Well, I, IgG is a great term, immunoglobins. IgG is the most common immunoglobin. 75% of your immunoglobins are IgG, and they do imply chronic inflammation. As an FYI, IgG is the only one that passes the placenta. Now, yeah, it's crazy, right? 75% of IgGs, are, you know, 75% of immunoglobins are IgG, so we're made for chronic inflammation. So just looking at that from a musculoskeletal approach, that poses an issue. And that's why you and I want to combine that mechanical and biochemical because we're never going to get the mechanical body uh, outcomes that we want if we don't address the biochemical. Segwaying back in once again to the IgG, there are tests that I like to use. So I'll use a Cyrex test for one. So the array two is the one that I usually, that's the one that I hang my hat on a lot. So it'll test for different markers like LPS, which is an endotoxin, which implies a leaky gut. Occludin and zonulin will imply that the tight junctions are open and actomyosin will talk about damage at the true gut lining, but they mix it with antibodies. So testing these antibodies are a critical element. You don't have to take that one at the gut or the brain lining. You can just ask for regular blood tests. Again, a great question. IgG chronic, IgM, um, uh, Wow, early activation and IgA reactivation. So there are ways to determine with these antibodies. There are also some others, if I can throw them out to you, since we're, you know, I know you're a PT and we do a musculoskeletal interleukins. Interleukin 1, interleukin 6, and interleukin 8 are early signs that we can test for cytokines and biochemical tests to see if people have susceptibility to lower back pain. Interesting. Okay, so there's lots of different tests that you can do to kind of check on what's going on at the gut. Now, you did mention that uh, if those tight junctions are open, that their uh, bacteria and viruses and whatnot can get through as well. Yeah. Um, so my question for you is, where are these uh, bacteria? Is it coming up from the large intestine into the small intestine, or is it coming through the food? And if it's coming from food, why is it not um, getting broken down via stomach acid or through the digestive processes that way? I'm gonna back. I'm gonna start from the back and go. Stomach acid. Great question. Lack of stomach acid. Inability of stomach acid, pancreatic acid, um, and believe it or not, here here's again the fifty thousand foot view bile and bile acid. So lack of stomach acid is a lot of protein pump inhibitors. Many patients take that. Our patients take that. Decrease the amount of stomach acid. In addition, which is really my area of expertise, which pertains to my book next year, vagus nerve. So your vagus nerve is your largest cranial nerve. It runs from your head or your brainstem, medulla oblongata, down through to your transverse colon. When vagus nerve tone is decreased because your sympathetic nervous system is increased, you get a decrease 
in stomach acids, pancreatic acids, and even bile acids. Now, doing the functional medicine, functional nutrition with all my patients, the new 2020 jam will be everybody will be talking about bile because bile emulsifies fat in the small intestine and bile allows contractions of the small intestine. So why do you get leaky gut? Well, they asked me for my upcoming book to give a list of 50 things. And we surpassed that. So we pulled it back to 25. Some of the things that people talk about are certain foods, are the environment, certain chemicals, gluten, the chemical of Roundup, which has glyphosate, extraordinarily deleterious to overall gut health, too much sugar, stress, breaking movements that increase cytokines can also cause an inflammatory reaction in your gut, gums chewing gums. So think of, and when I say gluten, people say they're on a gluten-free diet. I'm like, did you change your toothpaste? Triclosan is in most people's toothpaste. 75% of people who use a toothpaste with triclosan have IBS. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, we are chemically, we are 4.4% of the world's population. We use 80% of the world's herbicides. You may not where you are in Washington state, but you know, where I am right outside New York city, you know, there, uh, you know, where I live, the, the only animals I see are pets, you know, dogs getting walked, you know, so there's no fields really where I am. I got to go to the supermarket to get my food. Yeah. We definitely use a lot of herbicides and pesticides here. We have all the, um, a lot of alfalfa, but we also have, um, all the apple orchards. We provide most of the apples to the rest of the country, so they spray those all the time. Um, going back to the bile, because now mm-hmm. I'm super interested with that. People are coming from the low-fat craze and going into the high-fat craze. Right. You need bile to break down fat, but being low-fat for so long, what does that do to the bile in your system, especially in the gallbladder? And are they going to be less efficient at producing bile to break down the fat when they do a drastic switch like that? Um, I'm all, and it's, it's such a good question. You've, you've asked great questions, you know? So when you switch them from low to high fat, bile is critical because of the emulsifier. So we also, maybe we won't touch upon the people who don't have a gallbladder and is that high fat popular ketogenic diet, the right thing. So clearly not. Um, Remember you do have bile in your liver also. By the way, if your brain is your first brain, and your gut is your second brain, your liver is your third brain. Um, so I always like to do things in, I don't like to flick switches on patients. I like to do it in transition. So if they're at 20% fat, I'd like them to be at 60% fat in a month. So they're able to flick the switch to get the bile. Um, there's also bile supplements and there are things that enable you to produce bile on your own. Your body has its own ability to produce it again in your gallbladder and again in your liver. And um, one of the best things I've ever seen to help with bile is bile ox. It works like a champ. So I do supplement with most of my gastrointestinal uh, patients' bile. So we, we just talked about the gut to the brain and permeability. I know you're getting into this. In three years, it'll be bile and gallbladder to the gut, to the brain, and all that up. That that's that's the guy that's missing from the equation, but it's coming. It's there. It's gonna. It's invisible right now. Well, it definitely has to come because of uh, the ability to break down fats in order to create brain cells is going to be a really big topic for people to talk about too. 
um, especially cholesterol and all that good stuff. So uh, people have leaky guts. They have intestinal permeability. Their immune systems are going haywire. You mentioned earlier that if you have brain fog within 45 minutes of eating, then um, that's a pretty good indication you got some uh, gut stuff going on. So just to double check, what are some good ways to test the brain to see if there is some issues going on with the gut lining connected to the brain? So in reference to the blood-brain barrier? Yep. Yeah, why don't we talk the blood-brain barrier? So the blood-brain barrier is the balancer to the brain. So I used to work in a New York City club as a bartender, and the balancer was the guy who would try and keep the bad guy out. So he uh, he was our blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier actually filters 400 miles of arteries in the body for blood. So it's the protector between the blood and the brain. Once you damage the blood-brain barrier, you open the door to the brain. So maybe the most important test you'll ever take is the condition of your blood-brain barrier. So you do and can have specific tests that indicate the um, integrity of the blood-brain barrier. So again, Cyrax has test 20, which tests for these proteins. There's also something called neurofilament light. Neurofilament light is now being used very commonly with concussions to see a compromise there, a brain or a protein enzyme that's inside the brain. If they came out, obviously one of the barriers are, are damaged. Some other things that may indicate damage within the brain is C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, interleukin-8, CERT-2. So these are new tests coming down the line. They're there. It's just not mainstream. And my concern is that a a strong portion of a lot of the associated fields and medical field are not early adapters. They don't want to make that change. And right now, brain and brain damage and neurodegeneration is definitely at the top of all our consciousness. Right. Um, And when we're talking about these tests, are they pretty expensive? Because I know for a lot of people, expense comes into it too. Yeah, and and, and that is the problem. And that is sort of like, it's funny you brought that up because that is sort of the uh, discussion slash argument with the editor of the book. I'm giving you a lot of these options, many of which are not covered by insurance just yet. And that's unfortunate. But some of them are are nominal. So... um, they are strongly suggested. And, you know, those interleukins and C-reactive proteins, they are in your normal LabQuest and LabCorp blood work. So you can at least have indicators of inflammation. The actual blood-brain barrier test is a fee-for-service test. Now, uh, if you ran tests on someone's gut and uh, came back that they most likely have intestinal permeability, would it be all right to just assume that they have uh, blood-brain barrier issues, or would you want to test for sure with that too? Well, whatever happens to the gut happens to the brain. So I would say that you probably do have a compromise and certainly tend to and act as if you do. Um, usually the standard tests, if I'm doing fee-for-service, will be that those two because I'm all about detecting barrier breaks and removing triggers that break the barriers. So that's my thing. I'm a big believer. As long as I have a strong barrier system, I have a possibility in the patients of getting great clinical outcome. If we don't, I mean, just think of, you know, ripping your skin off and having this gaping hole. I mean, infection will probably ensue. It's the same thing. The problem is, again, people don't see the barrier opening in their brain because you can't see it and you don't see the barrier opening in your gut. But if people can just become a little evocative and understand that what I'm putting my hands over my gut on a podcast 
whatever's in your gut is now coming out and floating in your bloodstream, people go, wow. And whatever is floating in your body now has direct access, not through a filter, to get in your brain. So I think everybody can get the idea that you want to keep everything floating around in your body and keep your barriers in place as critical to overall health. Which is a really good point, too, because if um, bacteria and viruses are leaking through the gut and now it's entering the bloodstream, that could potentially end up up in the brain as well. Is that correct? That, that is correct. So whatever passes your gut has an immune system to possibly thwart. Unfortunately, whatever passes your blood-brain barrier has nothing but brain tissue to work and eat on. Awesome. Yeah, that is that is not good. Um, That's a no bueno where we're from. No, definitely not. Uh, and you mentioned concussion. So let's talk a little bit about that. I had a whole podcast episode with Dr. Brandon Brock talking about concussions, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your take. Um, if someone gets a hit, you know, they're doing a sport or... I mean, honestly, you get a concussion anywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. If they have any type of brain damage, does that shut off their digestive system in their gut or what's going on there? Oh, another leading question. Dr. Brock's definitely a leading expert. So when you hit your head, you damage your gut. And that, and that is something that people have to understand. So again, most people think they hit their head in a concussion is just from the eyebrows to the head. Some people now have looked from the chin to the head and some chiropractors have already incorporated the neck. It is from the top of your head to your waistline because your gut communicates with your brain and your brain communicates with your gut. When you hit your brain, Brown University, you have a concussion, Brown University has shown that it takes six hours for brain cells to die. Okay, people may understand that. Number two, six hours later, studies have shown that you have a tight junction damage in your gut. Three hours after a concussion, you have the release of something called lipopolysaccharide. We talked about it a little before, LPS and endotoxin, which shows that you have leaky gut. Now, the problem when you have leaky gut, it decreases your ability to produce a protein enzyme called brain-derived neurotrophic factors. Brain-derived neurotrophic factors, when they're released and hit the front part of your brain in the hippocampus, allow for brain neurogenesis, allows for brain and nerves to grow back. So if you hit your head and you don't fix your, your gut also, you're never going to get outcome in your brain. So it is gut to brain and brain to gut bidirectional. And then um, I'm thinking of like a lot of young athletes, uh, typically in high school, because they don't want to not play in a sport. Um, they might not talk about their head injury unless they obviously get knocked out or something, but they can get hit in a way that they come off seeing stars or whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, but then they go back out a couple plays later for people at that age. How do we get across some more information to them that this could potentially be damaging long-term if they continue to do that and that the immediate desire to play, continue playing the rest of that day might not be the best option for them. Well, twofold answer. Number one, I think it's it's outstanding point. We need to educate them and let them know that if we tend to this now, it won't be a problem later. And they'll also perform better later. So originally, the studies showed that 92% of people in the NFL years ago went back to playing football within six days. Makes sense. You get hit on Sunday, six days later on Saturday. Oh, okay, going to football game. New studies have shown that the myelin sheath Myelin incorporates nerves. The myelin sheath can loosen two weeks after a concussion. So clearly, if you went back, 
and your myelin sheath later loosens, you're much more susceptible to a reoccurrence and another second concussion. However, the study now shows it was done at, uh, I think it's a Betty Ford Hospital, I can get you the citation on that, that they waited 19 days and there were no deleterious effects of the concussion. They did a large study with wide receivers and running back. So there is a time frame in which you need. And the problem was that it, concussions were not being diagnosed and concussions were not given the proper time and they're still not given the proper treatment. Right, yeah, I know at least here in Washington, a lot of the concussion protocols are only seven days long at, or for sports in high school in the school system. So. That's not very much time. No, that isn't. And unfortunately, they're not going to benefit from that. It's been borne out that 21 days is a much better choice and proper treatment. Now, um, we, we can go all through that, but the bottom line is we have to protect our young athletes' heads. You know, the number one athlete that gets a concussion is a female soccer player. Yep. Super interesting. And then, uh, so let's talk a little bit about neurotransmitters. Um, so if you have gut issues going on, what's going on with your neurotransmitters? Well, you know, the gut community, it's, it's typically the communication in the brain to gut axis, the gut to brain axis. It's really the gut to brain because it's more of a bottoms up uh, conversation. And the reason it's a bottoms up conversation is that when you consider what's communicating, which is the bulk of the communication, not all of it is the vagus nerve. So the three things that are communicated to the vagus nerve, bloodstreams, hormones and neurotransmitters. So your vagus nerve is 90% afferent. So that means it's basically going up. Scientific America did a study two years ago and it was published in 2017, July and August, that spoke to the idea that most of the signals between the gut and the brain were from the gut up to the brain. Over 90% of your neurotransmitters are in your gut, your GABA, your serotonin and the like. So if you have damage in communication between your gut and your brain, you're not going to be producing that many neurotransmitters. Hence lies the rub, if you will. And I think that's a really good point uh, to make because so many people are trying to figure out the whole depression issue. And um, people are talking about serotonin, but no one's talking about where serotonin is actually being created at. And you mentioned that it's in the gut. So that's a really important topic to uh, discuss. Yeah, absolutely. 93% of serotonin is in the gut. And interesting with depression, it's the bacteria in your gut. So now, yeah. now, now we have definitive studies that we've read in the last two years that talks about this bacteria in the house. So it's, there's a term called dysbiosis, an unleveling of good and bad bacteria. We need, as humans, approximately 85% good to bad bacteria. Now, you're the bacteria you may need may be different than the bacteria I need. So it's very host specific. So getting into the microbiome and being able to test that, there are tests that are starting to come. What you would need versus I would need is getting very interesting, but it's become very personalized and individualized. And that's ultimately where medicine's going to go. Yeah, we had uh, Karen Krishnan on mm -hmm. uh, earlier this year or last year, I can't remember. But uh, he, he was talking a lot about the microbiome and how Right now, he would say we're, we've figured out maybe 10% of what's going on in there. So I'm curious, um, are you taking a deep dive into the microbiome and mm. trying to figure out what's going on there? Or are you just utilizing that information and then just seeing what you can do to help uh, su support a healthier bacterial ecosystem within the gut person? 
I'm always helping the bacterial ecosystem as much as I can. But just so you know, in my book, I use this term, which is coming, we talked about it, three-way calling. It's the microbiota gut to brain axis. However, I expanded that to at the end where we called it conference calling, microbiota, gut, heart to brain axis. Because people that have leaky gut have three times the incidence of heart issues. All right. So it is important that we are looking at the microbiome and there is a lot more that we're going to be learning about in the next few years uh, when it comes to the microbiome. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. The growth of the papers in the microbiome will be increasing exponentially, literally monthly. Do you think that the microbiome is going to be kind of the next big uh, health thing that we're going to be uh, looking into and talking about here in the next couple of years? Yeah, I, th I think the microbiome is going to be what we're talking about. I think we're talking about it now a lot, and I think it's going to continue. It's here to stay without question. It's indisputable. It's not a fad. Okay, Dr. Rob, uh, I want to open up the floor to you. Is there any final things that you want to make sure that uh, my audience knows about the gut and the brain access? Absolutely. Just everybody needs to start considering the gut to brain access. A couple of quick tidbits on how to keep it healthy. Adhere to my GPS. My GPS of health is no gluten, no processed food, no added sugar, and always take care of your DNA. No dairy, no nicotine, no artificial sweeteners. Get someone to check your movement, enjoy life, and remember, take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. Awesome. I love those acronyms. That's so simple to remember. Uh, and then my final question for you is, uh, do you have a morning routine? And if so, what is it? I'm going to tell everybody my morning routine. I'm quite proud of it. I get up before my wife. It's nice and quiet. I gather myself. I take my type AAA personality to do everything I can to quiet it down and calm it down. I then brew the coffee for the morning. I sit with my organic coffee and keto mix and start mapping out my goals of the day. And then my wife wakes up, we have breakfast, and eight o'clock I'm in the office, and it's an eight to 12 day. And I don't mean eight to 12 p.m., it's 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. day. People can find you at drrobertsilverman.com. You're also on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and you have your own podcast called the Proven Health Alternatives Podcast. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on on that podcast? Well, um, in our podcast, we try and get uh, uh, many different guest speakers on, and, and you, you've already just got an invitation during this one. We, we sent the email out so that people really to share alternative ideas versus mainstream medicine, if you will. And nobody, it, it's all scientifically based. There's no, uh, well, this will be the jam in like 150 years. It, this is what we're doing right now as alternatives. Awesome, Dr. Rob. Well, thank you so much for coming on. There's a lot of great information that you provided in this episode, and I'm excited to share it with everyone. Uh, so thank you again. Thanks for having me. I hope I can come back on. Appreciate it. Dr. Rob is a fantastic resource to learn from if you have complicated health issues you want to learn more about. He has quite a few videos and resources to check out on his site. So if you go to summitforwellness.com slash 93, you can find the links to all of his platforms right there. And if you are ready to get support for your health, then I am here for you. I can work remotely with anyone, anywhere, and we will dig deep to find the root causes to your issues. The body is a very complicated system, and you don't have to figure it out all alone. So if you are ready to make a change, then go to summitforwellness.com ready.
It's that time of year again when I start collecting data on what you as a listener wants to hear more of. I have a quick and simple survey to fill out that will help to create the show for next year. And for filling it out, you will automatically be entered to win a $100 gift card to any place of your choice. That way, if you have a local shops or restaurants or whatever that you want to support, you will be able to if you win. So if you go to summitforwellness.com slash survey, that's how you can enter. Next week, we are going to focus on some sustainability practices and how we can swap some everyday items for reusable options instead. Since there are some massive cleanup efforts currently going on to clean up trash that doesn't degrade very quickly, I figured it would be a great topic to discuss so we can start to make some changes. So let's go learn a little bit about Stephanie Lakoven. I am here with Stephanie Lakoven. Hey, Stephanie, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? I am a salsa dancer, a water skier, and I speak Spanish fluently. When did you start doing salsa dancing? Oh, I would say very casually in uh, about 1995 at the, at the end of college, but that was really casually. And, um, and now I kind of own, I don't go out that often, but um, I love Cuban style, specifically a Cuban style of salsa dancing. Salsa dancing was the first official date that my wife and I had. So, oh uh, my gosh! <laughs> well, you must be very good at that. <laughs> yeah, she thought she'd catch me off guard, but I had been doing salsa for a year leading up to that point. So, <laughs> not off guard. Excellent. So, what will we be learning about in our we will be talking about small changes that people can make in their daily lives to help to decrease uh, their impact on the environment. And also um, for those people who are wanting to make uh, changes in their schools or their school districts, I'm also offering some tips um, around that. And are there any uh, foods or nutrients that you think everyone should get more of in their diet? So I, I don't really work that way. I'm not counseling and nutrition anymore. And I've really, I've shifted the way I think um, where I subscribe more to the Michael Pollan approach to food and nutrition. So what he says is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Um, I believe in eating high quality, sort of the highest quality food you can afford. Um, you know, focusing on organics when possible, but um, just well-raised food that you can picture growing. And what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? All right. So we are meant to eat and enjoy food, not chemicals. So I recommend that people train their bodies and teach their minds to recognize the difference between those two. Um, and I, the second would be to move, move often and to challenge yourself physically. And uh, the third one is that everyone can be an advocate for change and to, to speak up if you see something that should be different. And that could be speaking up to yourself if you think that um, something should be different in your own house or your own um, body and then also in your community. Next week will be all about sustainability, so until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.